Hello and welcome to We Got Pine News for You. Thank you, as always, for joining us. Um, as you know by now, if you're regular viewers, in lieu of uh, registration free, we encourage our viewers to make a donation to charity, uh, either to a charity of, of your choice uh, or one of our three um, favourite charities, Shelter for the Housing Crisis, um, the GoFundMe Ukraine page um, uh, for the war in Ukraine, or Brian May's saving, uh, Save Me Trust. Now, on the subject of, of the Save Me Trust, can I draw your attention to a very new uh, awesome band in America called Tempt, who covered We Will Rock You, um, Brian May's famous song, and I've got a big single out covering that tomorrow, and by um, or by Crook, they've managed to arrange to um, uh, donate all their proceeds from that to Brian Save Me Trust. Um, so uh, I suggest you download that. A very good video indeed. Um, we are delighted to welcome for a record-breaking third time on the show uh, the Chief Power, Joanna uh, Avery. I think Chris has... Um, uh, adverts uh, for our show said you've been chief powder by since the year 2000. I think <laughs> probably for your sake, it's a good thing that isn't the case as a point since 2020. <laughs> um, but we're obviously really looking forward to hearing from you, particularly about um, government's uh, perspective on uh, the various recent actual and uh, proposed changes um, to planning policy um, that are well publicized. But in the meantime, prior to that, we've got um, four cases. Um, to deal with. Um, uh, prior to that, though, um, we need to introduce the panel. I noticed Paul isn't with us just yet, um, but um, Chris, perhaps we'll start with you today, because you seem to be in a different than usual location. So, how are you? Charlie, I, uh, and uh, hello, Joanna. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, I am, um, I'm in France. I'm in, uh, I was, I'll tell you where I am. Here's a map. We're all geographers, aren't we? But you can see that. That is Mont Blanc down there. And I'm here, just there, in Chamonix. And uh, I'm here with JCB and uh, some others. And we're here for a little light skiing for the weekend. And um, I, yeah, I'm just glad the Wi-Fi is working. I've been worried about it all day. Of course, it's the, it's the easy option to go down a mountain. But some of us actually climbed climbed Mob Log going up it. Much harder. <laughs> Mary, you're in the central. You guys, you're so competitive, right to the slopes. Amazing. Um, I'm yeah, I'm sitting here in the town legal offices, drinking my lovely Yorkshire tea out of my town mug, and I'm very well and looking forward to uh, the show and the interview with Joanna. Thank you. Excellent. Paul is uh, in a car, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Which motorway are you on today, Paul? Uh, I'm currently somewhere between Warrington and Tarpoli, um, in, in the corner of a service area, a long away from the petrol pumps. And I didn't want to disappoint my audience. What can I say, Charlie? Uh, and, they even have you, and they couldn't even give you a room by the hour. <laughs> That's it's your usual. Do you want? Uh, Sasha, lovely to see you too, as always. Lovely to see you, Charlie. I'm very tempted to phone the said service station and warn them there's a suspicious man in the corner <laughs> that needs investigation. I'm in the home of the league leaders. I'm in London. And, um, yeah, very happy. Paul, if it wasn't for the fact that I assume there's a boxes behind you, I must say you look like you're on a pizza delivery mission. The man's branching out. I must say, you know, Domino's have really smartened up their app these days. You get way the bad when you need to go over the tie. <laughs> no, I'll be listening half an hour, mate. Sorry. Yeah. Last, but of course, not least, Jada, are you calling from the department this evening or... or? Where? Well, I'm 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 in Whitehall, and uh, you 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 get a reflection of the office. Yes. And the lights are going to go on and off. I nearly had to start waving yeah. there. But if you if you know your Whitehall, and the windows yeah. behind me, it's part of for transport, and the reflection is uh, is uh, DCLG, uh, oh, so uh, Delux, sorry. Um, uh, so yes, in the middle of Whitehall, literally. In sort of probably. Something allegorical about DLUC and DFT reflecting each other or something. <laughs> so, oh, no, no, no. Uh, there, there are occasionally you're on, you're, on, you're on calls and you sort of say, could walk across the road or occasionally down the corridor to DEFRA. Um. <laughs> and I assume if you're, if you're still at work, you're, you're on the soft stuff. Are you drinking water or coffee? Yeah, or? drinking water. I was going to put you all on the spot because I, I chickened out of suggesting yes. a theme, but then I thought of one and only two, two of you actually have any fry warning. So can I have yes. my moment to put you on the spot for you? Yeah, I know. What is your theme that you chose? Uh, my, my theme is reunion, and I'll tell you why, uh, so you can quickly think about what you might say about that. Um, uh, so I think what I is, I'm really reflecting on at the moment is a lot of people across the industry are uh, 
you know, it's tough out there, isn't it? Um, there's lots of pressures on all of us. Um, and we're sometimes short of resources and sometimes we're back at the office, sometimes we're not. Um, and I've got the real pleasure tonight of sort of celebrating, uh, going back to meet the people I first started working with in 1991, who worked for Llewellyn Davis when I was a year out student and then I then went back when I graduated and what a fantastic bunch they were. They were generous with their expertise. They were generous with their time. We had fantastic work to do with the Department of Environment and LPAC and others at the time, and you kind of got that fabulous grounding. But the uh, the, the reunion of just meeting colleagues from the industry face to face, having those conversations, having those sort of side chats, which is where you actually problem solve, uh, and just celebrating a fantastic industry, multidisciplinary, passionate, and uh, hardworking, and just trying to do good things. So I refuse to be I refuse to be outdone by your theme, even though you gave it two minutes ago. I, I've got a, a Euros cap on where I was reunited for the first time with Sasha and Charlie whilst we've been doing this show. So um two minutes notice and I still delivered. Now, um let's go straight into the case reports. Also, Joanna, I, I imagine that uh, I normally obviously say that Yes, so then any do, you'll free come. I'd imagine oh, on this occasion, you'll stay firmly on mute. You're welcome to turn your camera off if you prefer. Um, we look forward to your interview with Led by Chris later on. But first up, Mary's going to take us to the Court for Appeal. Indeed I am. And this is all about a decision made on the 13th of January 2021 when the Council refused planning permission for a housing development. But a local resident, Mr Blacker, supported the development, uh, which was for housing on a partly PDL and partly Greenfield site. There you are. You can see the citation. You can see the uh, the barristers involved. It was a cornerstone um, affair. Uh, and the, the essence of this is that the officer, the planning officer, had recommended refusal, mainly because the housing development would have resulted in the loss of an employment site. Critically, the council's constitution constitution provided a planning code which stipulated that where members were minded to grant a permission contrary to an officer recommendation to refuse, the determination of the application must be deferred to the next meeting for consideration of the appropriate conditions and the reasons for the decision, but also for consideration of the implications of the decision, which which needed to be reported back to members. And in addition, the code required that only those members present at the first meeting could vote in relation to the identified reasons for refusal. So at the first meeting, which was conducted by, via Zoom and was said to be um, conducted in a, in a, in a quite... Um, incoherent uh, manner, members voted by eight to six that they were in fact minded to grant the permission. And so in accordance with the planning code, the minutes recorded that the matter be deferred in accordance with the constitution. At the second meeting, there was a report which set out proposed conditions, but members were reminded that no formal decision had been made and that all options at that stage remained open. In the event, the application was refused 10-1 with two abstentions. Several members changed their minds and explained why in the debate. So, Mr Blacker's challenge in the court below and repeated in the Court of Appeal was that the decision the first decision invoked the principle of consistency and that there was no consistency in the second decision, which was obviously completely different to the first. But the judge found below that the principle of consistency wasn't invoked and it was really all about identifying what that first decision was. Was it an in-principle decision to grant or was it not? And the court found that it wasn't an in-principle decision and therefore the principle consistency wasn't invoked. And in the Court of Appeal, they agreed, but they also went on to say that even if the principle of consistency had been invoked, then the council had acted in accordance with that principle 
because those who had changed their minds identified the fact that they were changing their minds and identified. So there we go. That's the case of Black. Thank you very much. Important court case and some important lessons there. Now, the Secretary of State has um, issued a uh, well-known minor to grant letter relation to prison in Lancashire. So it's over to our representative from Domino's. Um, Paul, go to jail. Do not pass go. Do not collect £200. Eat pizza. The, the, the hilarious part, actually, is this is the remnants of a recording studio. My middle son, who do, does the music for the show, uh, has just moved and he's kitting out his basement. He asked me to call in and collect this on the way back from my inquiry. I am literally rammed with the uh, recording studio gulp. So that, that's what a father does. But anyway, Leyland Prison. Um, so this is a decision from the uh, Parliamentary Under Secretary of State for Local Government and Building Safety, um, Lee Rowley, on behalf of the Secretary of State. Um, it's a minded to grant um, consent, uh, uh, decision, or rather non-decision, in respect of a hybrid proposal for a prison of about 75,000 square metres uh, close to HMP Garth and HMP Wilmot, uh, Wymot in Leyland. That's mostly uh, green belt, uh, Greenfield, all Greenbelt, and a little bit of PDL. There was an application to Chorleyborough Council in August of 2021, refused in December 2021, appealed, and then there was a seven-day inquiry in July 2022. Um, the uh, the local represent local authority was represented by Piers Riley Smith. Jenny Wigley represented uh, the government promoting and. Uh, there was a group of barristers who appeared on a pro bono basis, um, uh, led led by Joe Cannon, um, to oppose it as part of a local action group. So it's an interesting case for, for that aspect as well, that advocate instructed pro bono uh, counsel to act on behalf of local residents group. But a whole series of issues in relation to it, obviously, whether there was very special circumstances, whether need was um, demonstrated, whether alternative sites were demonstrated, and whether it was acceptable in highway terms. The Secretary of State... Forgive me. The inspector concluded that there were problems in relation to a number of different aspects. So he concluded that um, it, that that the highway uh, hadn't been proven in relation to the quantification of works, which might resolve the the problems uh, and therefore avoid giving rise to severe highway effects. But also concluded the alternative sites appraisal wasn't wasn't up to much. Also concluded there would be significant effects on the green belt. Uh, and also on character and appearance. And ultimately, uh, the inspector, Tom Gilbert-Waldridge, recommended that the uh, application be refused. It's then gone onto the desk of the Secretary of State, who's agreed with everything um, that the inspector said, apart from this issue of highways. And the Secretary of State has, or rather the Undersecretary of State, has said, well, go back and try again, because I would be minded to conclude that very special circumstances has been demonstrated if you can demonstrate that the highway works uh, can can be quantified and can demonstrably get over the, the problems which have been uh, 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 demonstrated. I've got to say, if this wasn't uh, HM government that was promoting a prison, it's very difficult to see that the Secretary of State would have sent it back to the applicant as a private individual or a private developer to say, well, you've not really proved your case, but go and have another go, and then I'll be minded to grant. It's a very odd decision. It's not unique. Uh, there have been other instances where there's been minded to grants, usually in situations where there's been defects with the 106. But this is certainly one uh, that's unique in my experience, where it's a Greenbelt case where VSC has been essentially minded to be found, and yet the Secretary of State says there's a crucial element that there's more evidence that's needed upon. It's an oddity uh, for a whole host of reasons. Don't think there's any real principles, but procedurally it's all over the place. But an interesting case in any event, and it's close to hope. Thanks, Paul. Be interested to see how that one uh, plays out. Um, well, I'm next. I'm going to tell you about a decision in West Oxfordshire District Council's area. It's uh, an appeal by Ailscliff uh, Strategic Land against a refusal by West Oxfordshire District Council of planning permission for uh, up to 120 dwellings on a green field site on the edge of a village which Chris and our flyer quite rightly called a charmingly called village called Ducklington, which to my mind connotes images of village greens and ducks swimming around a pond. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's that's the rather cute image it conjures up. Anyway, based upon the reasons for refusal, the um, main issues were identified the inspector as firstly the effect of the scheme on the character of the area, 
in terms of uh, scale, alleged coalescence and loss of green space. And secondly, effects of the scheme on the Duckington Conservation Area, which the site was outside but near to. Now, the inspector John Longmore allowed the appeal, and in relation to carrot and appearance, he started by noting that the site and its surroundings were not a designated landscape or valued landscape. And then he went on to note that um, it was adjacent to and influenced by, in landscape, carriage and visual terms, residential properties on one side, as well as an electricity substation. And there were several pylons and electricity wires um, leading to and from the pub substation, which prominently, in his words, traversed the site. He found that there would be a degree of coalescence between Duckington and the nearby village of Whitney as a result of the development, but he didn't think that coalescence was particularly significant because it would only be on one side of the road. The other side of the road already had extensive development all along it, so already there they already was um, a degree of coalescence. Um, he felt that the loss of openness uh, from the development wouldn't be um, significant, bearing in mind the urban influences um, all, um, on this on the site already in terms of the pylons, etc., and adjacent influences. And interestingly, in terms of the visual impact development, he thought the visual impact would be neutral. I'll come back to that later. And um, he said the views of the appeal site change from an area of open land dominated by pylons to residential buildings, but with some open space, landscaping, and loss of pylons. He noted in particular the scheme was low density with 42% open space. And that was a key factor in respect to concluding that the scheme was acceptable, not just in terms of its L&V impact, but also in terms of its perceived scale. He then went on to consider the second identified main issue, this effect on the significance of the conservation area. And I would say, I'm not, I'm not just saying this in case the inspector's listening, don't know if he is or isn't, but um, the path decision here is really impressive in terms of the structure the inspector used um, in considering the issue. So he started by considering under a subheading the main elements that contributed to the significance of the conservation area. The next subheading was um, the um, uh, main elements which contributed to the conservation area, which were most relevant to the appeal scheme uh, and site. Then he went on to pose the question, does the appeal site contribute contribute to those elements, those those uh, contributors to significance, um, and he concluded to a limited extent he did. And then finally he went on to consider the effect of the appeal scheme on the contribution that the site made um, to those particular aspects of the contributors to the con conservation area significance. So uh, I'd suggest that sequence is, is um, dare I say, an analytically impeccable sequence of headings by which to consider the effect of development on the setting of the designated heritage asset. You look at significance to the conservation area. What are the main contributors to significance? What are the relevant ones to the site? What's the site's performance in relation to those? And how will the development affect that contribution? Um, so overall, he said applying that methodology, for want of a better term, he, he considered that the, there would only be very limited harm, uh, less than substantial harm to the conservation area, not upper end less than substantial harm as the council has contended. Uh, and then in the paragraph 202 framework balance, he considered the public benefits, including the, the housing and the affordable housing delivery benefits of the scheme, outweighed the, the limited less than substantial harm. And then turning to the tilted balance, he considered the effects of, of granting permission wouldn't simply demonstrably outweigh the benefits. So in terms of the key points of wide application, I'd say there are probably three. Firstly, um, where uh, you're promoting a development or acting for the promoted development, consider an ample degree of open space more than standard in order to overcome potential concerns about the effect of development on character and scale. Um, secondly, uh, not all greenfield development is negative in terms of visual impacts. Here, because of the existing detractors, the inspector thought the visual effects of the housing would be neutral. And thirdly, if you're writing a report or decision document in relation to the effect of a proposed development on the setting of heritage asset, you could do far, far worse than to copy the sequence of headings in what I've described already as, as an analytically impeccable analysis of development on the setting of conservation area in this case. Um, so um, that's um, the first of two, in fact, West Oxfordshire uh, appeals groups. The other one, um, Sasha, you're going to tell us about. I, I am, Charlie, but I first of all got to just mention to Joanna, I'm very upset I didn't get my invite tonight because I also start to work in 91. So I'm, I'm trying, it's not never too late. <laughs> um, right. Can I then deal with this case? Yes, I, I'm dealing with a case and Rob might put it up, but it's basically, 
I'm also in West Oxfordshire in the delightful village of Freeland, which is in West Oxfordshire. This, as we can see, was an application and appeal for 160 extra care units in this village by senior living. And the decision is of last week, the 18th of January. Now, we've all been in this position. I think my reading, I wasn't there. I wasn't part of this appeal, but we've all done appeals where you just get a sense that the case on Balfi Pellant just hasn't grabbed the inspector in any real way. And I get this sense from this, this decision. I mean, there are various points I wanted to identify. The first is that the inspector just didn't like the scale of the proposal. A, a free land is quite a small village. It was 28 or 29 out of the 41 settlements ranked in sustainability criteria in West Oxfordshire. And the proposal would effectively amount to a 13% increase in the residences and the population of Freeland. So the first point the inspector didn't like was the scale and, and nature of the increase in population, which he described as it couldn't sensibly be described as limited, which was obviously uh, an aspiration of policy. The second point, which is noteworthy, is that there was a pretty significant HLS shortfall in West Oxfordshire. The council said 4.1, the inspector sided more favourably with the appellant saying about 2.5. The third point, of course, consequently was tilted balances in play and not disengaged by by power 202, so that, that was passed. But fundamentally, I get a sense, going back to my point, the inspectors make some pretty damning comments about the scheme. The necessary scale and form of the buildings across the site would dominate and be wholly uncharacteristic of the local context. So we've all been there. I just don't think the inspector liked what was proposed. The other thing I just wanted to identify, two other noteworthy matters, something that I really don't like but did happen in this case from the LPA was the identification for the first time and the proof of evidence that it was a valued landscape. The inspector endorsed that conclusion, but it's always uh, slightly, I think it should be set out in the statement of case if a valued landscape is going to be contended. That came forward for the first time in the proof of evidence. And the other point is the inspector gives quite a strong view on how to weigh evidence from third parties, the LPA and the appellants. And he notes, he notes here, which is quite interesting, that I've taken out the arguments in respect of the absence of comparative professional qualifications from certain witnesses and the impartiality of others. And then he says, where elements of the evidence were evidently speculative, including in respect to testimonies from residents or other inspired villages, everyone substantiated either reduced or attributed no weight. However, I found the crux for the arguments and evidence being put both by the council of all six to be capable of substantiating their respective standpoints on the principal issues at play. Reading between the lines, the inspector obviously is giving some pretty significant weight to the local residents' arguments, um, notwithstanding their absence of professional qualifications. So that are the important points, Charlie, from that appeal decision. Thank you. Thanks, Asha. Really interesting. It's a it's a it's a small miracle that you both managed to cover the right West Oxford case. <laughs> Yeah, the, the wrong one. Trust me, the chances of that actually having played out is <laughs> quite small. Mm -hmm. Um, now, um, Chris, over to you to introduce Jumana for a third time to our, our viewers and to start off the interview. And by the way, I should say before I hand over to you, uh, encourage our guests, please do add any questions you'd like any of us to ask Joanna to the Q&A and we'll do our best to pick a couple of those during the course of the evening. Okay, thank you very much, Charlie. Well, uh, Joanna, good afternoon. Thank you very much for joining us for this third time. Now, Previously, we have covered your incredible career and your rise to your current position as chief planner. But looking at your CV, something caught my eye this time. And it is, although you were born in Kenya, which sounds very exotic, you grew up in your father's hometown of Lurgan in Northern Ireland. And you did that during the Troubles in the 1970s and 80s. And in an area which is the so-called murder triangle, it says here, where sectarian violence was at its worst. And uh, you have said that that has taught you an experience to appreciate neutrality and much more besides um, and uh, the resilience of the community in Northern Ireland. Now, you have obviously faced challenging, challenging times, which leads me to my questions. 
Um, the first question I want to ask you about is about the changes to the MPPF. There is a lot of discussion about this. You will have been and seen that. Um, I don't want to get into any of the politics because that's not appropriate to ask you about as a civil servant. But what I, what I do want to ask you about is um, what what is the purpose of the changes, first of all, in terms of design? What, it, what are you seeking to achieve through those changes? Thanks, Chris. Um, the MPPF update is, uh, which was sort of launched before Christmas, twenty uh, second of December, um, uh, is really important document. So it sets out the sort of first phase of changes that we'll be bringing forward in an update to the MPPF in the spring, um, and it's the start of then the sort of fuller update of the MPPF that will come forward later on. And as colleagues on this call will know, we did quite a lot of work uh, and launched a previous update to the MPPF in the summer of 2021, where we uh, were absorbing or reflecting on the recommendations of the Building Better, Building Beautiful Commission. Um, and part of that work was the publication of the National Model Design Code, uh, the sort of daughter document to the National Design Guide, and basically providing a framework to have an updated menu of issues that cover all aspects of design and placemaking and beauty uh, for planning applications and in policymaking and support local authorities preparing um, design codes as which will become mandatory within um, uh, the, app the application of the Leveling Up and Regeneration Act when it becomes an act. Um, and the most recent updates on beauty actually present two quite interesting sort of ideas, which are sort of, I suppose, played through and played through quite commonly uh, as we look at, generally, as we all professionally look at planning applications and how to evaluate the quality that's on the table in front of us. Um, I'm going to start with a with the second one, which is actually just visual material. Um, it's not unusual, I think, we'd all probably agree that we might be looking at a planning application and it's not immediately apparent uh, what is being sought for permission and what's being sought is what is being presented as a sort of an idea of what might be pursued as a development and the ultimate um, delivery of quality that you might expect, whether that's the architecture of the house, whether it's the treatment of the landscape and so on and so forth. And we're all getting used to uh, using parameters plans and sometimes you have things that are referred to as illustrative uh, and they're conditioned as illustrative, which I think is a fascinating idea as well. Can you condition something that's illustrative? Um, and then obviously we're starting to look at design codes coming through. So one of the changes, and, and if colleagues haven't spotted it, I'm, I'm sure you probably have, we've issued uh, a track changes version of the MPPF specifically for the changes that we'd be bringing, proposing to bring in subject to consultation this spring and one of them talks about um you know having clear and accurate accurate plans and drawings um, and it really is talking to making sure that material is clear to everybody the community the decision makers and so on and so forth so as you go from say uh, an outline application to to reserve matters all that that you're clear at which stages of what's being signed up to um, the second element in uh, which is being implemented uh, or proposed to be implemented in this first update is about clarifying where, uh, for example, it's a small thing, but where you have a street that's got the ability to sort of allow houses and homes to adapt with mansards, for example, and where people have quite mis mixed experience as to whether that's something that local authorities um, are reluctant to consider or whether some local authorities are actually quite pro and they have a, a adopted design guides and they've thought it through and they, they actually intentionally promote the use of mansards and changing, uh, you know, sort of some of the um, layout of houses to accommodate, you know, uh, bigger families and, and better spaces for, for people. So that's a quite a small change, but, but quite relevant in certain um, communities and neighbourhoods. And then the third element is about bringing, I suppose, the, the concept of beauty into the MPPF with a little few few word changes. And I suppose I just remind everybody, um, when we talk about design quality, we can go back to you know, Vitruvian principles of firmness, commodity and delight, which is basically, uh, does it function well? Is it built to last? And does it bring delight? Is it beautiful? Does it, does it lift our spirits? Does it have that qualitative aspect, which is really about it standing the test of time? Um, and... To some extent, it's bringing, it's quite intentionally sort of talking about beauty as well as design quality and all those other aspects as outlined in the National Model Design Code within to the, into the MPPF in a few edits. Okay, right. Thank you. And I uh, I was keen that you did make a reference to mansard rooms because that had a few, few of us puzzled, but uh, now we're a little wiser as to why that's there. 
Okay. Um, now I want to move to what is undoubtedly generating the most level of interest, which is what is the purpose behind moving to voluntary housing targets? Okay. So um, unsurprisingly, this is a topic of much interest. And um, just to sort of, I suppose, uh, explain what the proposals are and I suppose some of the nuance around um, the proposals. So uh, local housing need has always been the starting point for local authorities to evaluate and apply um, uh, those needs to their plan making. Um, and then obviously it's sort of placed in terms of other ramifications when the presumption and so on um, uh, then kicks in in certain circumstances currently. Uh, what what um, the government really considers to be a sort of current issue and we all know this, and uh, is we are we we are very intentionally, and government are very intentionally about a plan-led system, and yet we only have forty percent coverage of up-to-date plans. So there's a mismatch between us having a plan-led system where a community uh, 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 basically and a council has a strategy for this place, which brings together spatial realities, environmental realities, housing need. Um, you know, environmental change, adaptation, all those things into a single strategy, which is about their place. So uh, the changes that are being brought forward are, in a sense, saying to local authorities, if there are things that are disincentivizing you to to plan because you feel that maybe, you know, things are being imposed rather than you're making active decisions, then there's some adjustments that are being proposed in the MPPF updates and some other aspects that would come through later in the further MPPF that will come later on after the bill becomes an act. Um, and and those are basically reiterating um, as it is now that the lo- that the local housing need is the starting point um, for uh, considering how to allocate land in your local plan, um, but also recognising that sometimes there are exceptional circumstances where a local authority um, may want to sort of consider um, and proactively make the case to for to take less growth, I suppose, and less housing numbers because of their special circumstances. Um, and the MPPF prospectus um, outlines some of those, circ- well, three of the circumstances. One is where a local authority has actually been doing really well in delivering housing. Um, and at the moment, policy can take into account, um, uh, obviously, under provision of housing historically, but not the oversupply, so where a local authority is really lent in and delivered well. Uh, and sometimes they may have done that in partnership with with uh, adjacent local authorities and they've just chosen to take growth at different stages in the cycle of development and so on. So it sort of sort of brings that back onto level playing field, which is that if you've over provide, if you've, you've, you've been re- doing really, really well on delivery, that it sort of smooths out that delivery expectation um, uh, in relation to the application of local housing need figures. And then the other things are reflecting circumstances. We all know that every community and every place is unique and has its unique opportunities and constraints so it's reflecting uh, local authorities reflecting those constraints and how they absorb um, the local housing need requirements um, particularly in relation to Greenbelt um, and also in relation to the existing character and density um, of the place and how they then address growth uh, in relation to that existing character and density. So the driver is for local communities to feel that this is their plan um, uh, bringing forward the right housing in the right places to the right quality um, and that it's it's basically incentivizing um, uh, those homes to come forward. There's an, I'm sure we'll come on to it, Chris, but there's other aspects that are actually about um, incentivizing what, why it's good to get a plan in place and why local how local authorities can be measured on permissions um, uh, as well. So we can come on to that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think everybody can relate to your point about getting plans uh, adopted, and there's a there's a massive problem there. But l- let me just ask this: um, in that context. And given quite a few authorities have already withdrawn their plans, how does the department think this move to voluntary targets will help deliver 300,000 homes a year? The government remains committed to the 300,000 homes per annum. Um, The objective is to have more plans in place because local authorities feel in charge of the process. And the the other balancing act in the conversation um, is basically uh, uh, if a local authority, as outlined in the bill, has got an up-to-date plan in place, um, they will no longer be subject to the five-year housing land supply and fall into um, a presumption. So in a sense, a sort of emphasis on planning by appeal, to some extent, the control moves slightly away from them and towards um, uh, um, uh, the developer and the promoter. So it's basically putting more authority back with the local authority 
and the with the emphasis that if you have a local plan in place, um, uh, those sorts of um, the risk of having more decided at appeal and out of the hands of the local authority diminishes. Okay, and and uh, I you know it's good to hear the government is still committed to three hundred thousand a year. Um, but can I just ask what research has been done to establish what the consequences of this move to voluntary targets will be? So what research has been done? Uh, there's, as you can imagine, in government, we're constantly tracking markets and uh, um, and what's going on across the country. Um, we will continue to track the impact of policy. Actually, I mean, the obvious statement of uh, fact is that it's not actually policy yet. It won't be policy until the MPPF, MPPF is actually issued formally. Uh, sometime in the spring, this this set of updates, um, and we'll continue to to track um, uh, what that's meaning for both plan preparation, but then obviously the applications as they come through, and obviously things that go to pins and so on and so forth. Um, and I would just like to thank the industry also because there's huge amounts of analysis that I know the industry is doing and feeding back to us on what they're both perceiving, um, watching out for, um, and also analysing as well. So that's all really good impact input into our um, policy development. Yeah. I mean, you would encourage people to respond, wouldn't you? If the industry is concerned about this, then they need to respond. And, and with evidence and research that shows that, what their what their concerns are, presumably. Yeah, completely. This is a consultation. Uh, there are uh, uh, no fate complete. Uh, you know, we're, we we are consulting uh, with the industry and the public um, through uh, the MPPF prospectus. Uh, and please do give it good consideration. Um, and in, really importantly, there's sort of two tiers of information in the prospectus. One is obviously captured in the track changes in the MPPF document itself. So those are the sort of near-term proposals for change in the MPPF that would sort of take effect probably, well, in the spring. Um, I know that's quite a wide concept, the spring. Uh, um, but then actually there's some really important questions in there about further changes um, in the MPPF and other matters. Um, and so please do consider those as well. And um, uh, I know uh, there's a lot of consultation um, documents that we've put out and we will continue to put out in the coming months and we can come on and talk about those. But it is really important that we hear from the, from everyone in the industry um, uh, uh, about how they think this is going to land on the ground and, and where they sort of see nuances and, and consequences that they think we should be aware of. Okay, well, I know Charlie's got a question coming up later up about the timescales for this because obviously everybody's very interested in the precise timescales. My last question on the MPBF before we turn to the levelling up bill, um, and that is to, to ask how does not needing to do a Greenbelt review assist in boosting the supply of housing? So just for clarity, and I know um, uh, sometimes when we put documents out, um, the nuance of the policy, you might hear, see a headline and, and, and not have had time to read the actual wording. Uh, what it's basically saying is there's no obligation to review Greenbelt to meet your local housing need. It is not saying you should not. It's actually saying it's it's up to the local authorities to make that decision. So, uh, uh, and therefore, you know, if local authorities um, see that Greenbelt releases the appropriate way for them to meet their growth, uh, it, you know, in co in coordination with uh, uh, their neighbours, for example, um, then that is absolutely up, up, up for grabs for them to do so. So it's not a don't release Greenbelt, it's a uh, make a localised decision as to whether that's that's the right way to meet growth in your area. And I suppose one way in which the industry could, you know, help with the consultation is to explain what they think will happen and what they, what they anticipate will happen. Uh, rather than necessarily um, just saying it's an option because because people know what the politicians may choose to do. But anyway, um, let's move on to the levelling up bill. Um, and I, I want to start with a sort of very general question, which is what exactly is levelling up and what specific acts of the bill will deliver levelling up? Thanks. So um, it feels like a bit of a time ago now, but the levelling up white paper um, actually specified 12 missions, levelling up missions. Um, and what is really powerful and fascinating, I mean, as a professional who's worked in sort of across economic development and lots of different, looking at diff very different outcomes of how we change our, our urban and our peri-urban environments. Um, you know, we're always sort of talking about what creates, you know, change and regeneration and development. And uh, in, this, in essence, those things which, which in old parlance is levelling up, we used to call regeneration. Um, and uh, 
um, it it is the combination of skills, transport, you know, recognizing health disparities, recognizing education attainment and access to good education. And the 12 missions actually are that very full suite of considerations. Um, and so leveling up while this department um, leads it, it uh, and obviously the Secretary of State is, is, is the primary person around the cabinet table, it's very much a government program. Uh, and we, uh, you know, Michael Gove sits at the centre of, of that um, uh, set of objectives. Um, and so what the bill then does specifically is basically say that government will um, basically hold itself to account on the delivery of those missions. Um, the missions themselves are not on the face of the bill, um, but what is is a commitment to annually report on a series of levelling up um, uh, missions and to sort of hold itself to account. So what is, I think, really powerful is that that holistic, complex set of issues, if you just take health outcomes, for example, and we all know sort of health disparities when you go, you know, we all know sort of examples of when you look at different health disparities, even within a close geography, in different bits of our, uh, uh, our cities, for example, or even different bits of our urban to rural areas. Uh, it's recognising those sort of complex interwoven sets of issues and that it takes a cross-government um, set of programs to deliver against them. Um, so that's one, that's the sort of, I suppose, the sort of scene setter and the sort of setting of not just objectives and missions, but actions to to deliver against them and the government held, holding itself to account. And then there are some more, because obviously there are certain things that have to happen in legislation and certain things happen outside legislation. Um, but the particular things that I think are relevant probably to us in uh, the front end of the bill um, uh, are... Um, aspects to support some of the devolution deals that are currently happening. Colleagues will be aware that there was a really important conference uh, yesterday, which Michael Gove uh, spoke at, which was talking about uh, devolution deals and levelling up. Um, and you know, the, as as colleagues will have seen announced in the press over the last months, there's very proactive work going on about you know devolving more responsibilities and funds to deal with those complex issues at the geography of. Um, uh, combined authorities and obviously there's been quite a lot of experimentation and really great work done on that in Greater Manchester over the years. London's the most devolved as we all know um, and what the bill also does is create the ability for um, county combined authorities to be created as well. So there'll be much more um, uh, freedom to have and more combined authorities coming to coming to the fore which can then take take the benefit of these devolution deals and those sort of locally defined programs and activities and funding. Yeah, I mean, I, I know Mary's got a question about those principles of levelling up, um, but just on that point where you say about more county uh, structures and so on, I mean, you speak to most professional planners, speak to, to any of us, we would all say what's missing in the system is far more strategic planning. Guests like Catriona Riddle have talked about it. And, you know, even, dare I say it, regional planning. Does, does the LERP really, does the bill seek to allow a framework at least to provide more opportunities for strategic planning? So the bill is very clear. Um, it talks about the fact that some uh, uh, spatial development strategies are with us and they're here to stay. And that's something that local authorities can decide to prepare voluntarily. So that is still very much in the system as it has been. Um, and combine that with uh, uh, the intention which is to, in the bill, which is to drop the duty to cooperate, um, as which is seen as a sort of bit of an, uh, a bit of a stumbling block for some local plans and develop an alignment test where, you know, local authorities speak to each other and consider sort of need across a wider area. Um, it, there's less there for obligation. Uh, there's an emphasis on, on, on collaboration and partnership. Um, but look at that in uh, also in relation to Merrill Combined Authorities, devolution deals, uh, counting combined authorities, you can kind of see that there's this opportunity to sort of look at those geographies um, and and problem solve at uh, those different scales. Okay. Final question from me then on this. How will the new infrastructure levy help deliver infrastructure if it's calculated, the levy, at the completion of development? Yeah, so the proposal is is that the what, what will basically happen is local authorities will be free to set their rates for their infrastructure levy. Um, it will then be applied to uh, the end value, uh, the completion value of development. 
Um, but it doesn't mean to say it all has to be paid at the back end. Um, uh, and um, uh, and so and also local authorities will have the freedom to borrow against it. So over time, they'll be able to develop a pot which they can borrow against. Um, and so it does give them their f more freedom to have a kind of an income stream that they can then borrow against. And also, I mean, colleagues will may remember this from previous um, uh, presentations and discussions, but um, there is also the, the 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 thing about the levy it sets it sets um, uh, a threshold which you you have to meet in terms of funding. Um, but what it also does is where there's a very complex where there's a complex or very major scheme, which invariably you cannot dislocate some of um, uh, the kind of key aspects of infrastructure. Um, uh, and apologies if you've heard me talk about this example before. The really easy get go to is the primary school at the bottom of the housing um, development in Kings Cross. You couldn't, you could never dislocate the delivery of that primary school and the funding of it from the residential above. So there will always be some instances where you can't dislocate the very thing and fund it separately and deliver it separately, either in construction terms or or development terms or or even in funding terms. So. Section 106 will be retained for those kinds of schemes. And again, the levy will set the, the floor, which a developer will have to meet through in-kind contributions um, and, of course, potentially go further. But the levy, again, sets that sort of floor um, um, to meet uh, as a kind of charge. We will be putting out um, uh, in due course, obviously, a consultation doc on the infrastructure levy and this sort of broader um, set of proposals, and I think importantly for colleagues to to know is because it is it's complex. It's quite a big change, although obviously people have been getting very used to and applying SIL very effectively, which is a obviously a levy based system. Um, but the uh, commitment is to do something we refer to as test test and learn exercise. So it's not a sort of moment in time you switch to the infrastructure levy. We're going to do piloting, straight testing for a period of time, learn from that, do the feedback loops, and then. Any adaptation or evolution of the of the model, we would be we would do that before we roll it out. Okay, all right. There are lots of uh, lots of issues there uh, that many of us would like to discuss, but we need to move on. And to be fair to the other panelists, so um, Charlie, uh, do you have a question? Thanks, uh, Fifth. Um, two questions. One super quick one. Um, when is the final version going to be published? Spring. Ah, that's a wonderful civil service answer. <laughs> the second question, I've tried to synthesize the audience comments um, and, and the a concern that many hold is that the consultation draft the new framework provides greater flex for authorities to adopt a requirement that's significantly less than the identified need. Yeah. And thereafter, the first five years, they don't have to have a deliverable five-year supply even against that reduced figure. So the concern that some people have is that metro local authorities could but even if they under-deliver against a requirement which itself under-delivers, there's no planning consequences to that. Is that right? And if not, what reassurance can we offer viewers about that? I think that fairly summarizes about six or seven comments on, on the chat. Yeah, so um, we've th there are various things we're doing, which is also related to the buffer. So the buffer is, is the buffers are being dropped against the housing delivery test. Um, there are some really important questions in the consult in the um, consultation doc, which colleagues might want to come back on, very particularly uh, about how what we apply to the housing delivery test in this immediate phase, um, and perhaps you know colleagues on the call who, who've you know asking questions about that. That's they're quite important questions that people might want to come back on. They're very they're expressed very openly um, uh, because that that sort of the relationship between housing delivery, the housing delivery test, switching off the buffer, and uh, and obviously uh, the intention is that the changes to five-year housing land supply would also kick in at the point that this new version of the MPPF comes out in the spring. So yes, that's a lot of change all at once. So um, people might want to sort of respond to the questions about housing delivery test and its application. Thank you very much. Thank you. Denny, uh, Paul, do you have a question? Uh, I, I do, and it's a quick one you'll be pleased to, to hear, Joanna, largely because I couldn't be more uncomfortable if I possibly tried sitting sideways in my Audi boxing on the side of the road. So my question is, should local planning authorities who are promoting draft plans at the moment involving Greenbelt release continue to do so, or would they be, be well advised just to wait to see what the final changes to MPPF will be? And that's obviously in the light of a number of authorities deciding 
uh, to use the, uh, the the draft MPPF as a reason to postpone or delay or all their plans. My, my are you won't be surprised to hear that I would say, and I think a minister would probably say the same thing, which is keep going with your plan. Uh, uh, um, uh, it is always better to have a plan in place than not uh, not having a strategy for your place uh, when it's such an important set of issues that we're trying to grapple with. Uh, um, seems, to be honest. Uh, not not the right way to proceed. Um, and if you think about it, uh, it's giving, you know, the local authority has to make proactive choices about, you know, green belts and, and so on and so forth. So that those conversations can start now. But if they, if they are comfortable with what they're doing, they should absolutely proceed and keep going with their local plan. The other reason to note in terms of timing is in relation to the overarching changes that the, the the bill, the Leveling Up Regeneration Bill, will bring about, and the role uh, and the transition to the new system is worth a quick mention, Paul, if that's all right, because it's relevant to to timing issues generally for plans that are in play at the moment. So there are sort of two time frames: one for existing plans that are going through um, Reg nineteen eighteen with the inspector, and then beyond. So I'll just quickly talk through both of those because it's worth colleagues know. Um, and this also is outlined in the MPPF perspectives, but I'll just give you the sort of headlines because it's quite important. So if you've got a, uh, a you know, an existing plan that's in preparation, uh, you'll have until June 2025 to submit it, which might seem like quite a long time, but actually for some, there's, you know, there are plans that are sort of in preparation at the minute and they're out, they might right be up to the line. Uh, and then, uh, you know, obviously through examination and so on, those plans will be expected to be adopted by December 26. I know these seem like long time frames, but uh, in fact, they're pretty young. Um, uh, uh, you know, people will need to get motoring. Um, so that's so the submission deadline. Just to repeat, for to to pins is the sixth uh, is June 2025. The next time frame is probably more important, actually. Uh, if you're at November 2024 and your plan is more than five years old. And you're not already in the system, and meeting those t- timelines I've just mentioned, you'll be you'll be considered as part of the new system. So, uh, um, and you know, we'll obviously, I mean, we'll we'll start to sort of, you know, batch up uh, and obviously um, discuss which plans come through uh, in what order through the new system. And then you've got 30 months for the new plan, um, new style local plan, and a new faster, more rapid process. Uh, so, you know. I think that does create a bit of an incentive to crack on, I'd hope. But but what? Sorry, just as a follow up to that though, but yeah. what's just to the point that that's been raised by a number of authorities about saying, well, we don't want to carry on with our current plan, which releases Greenbelt, because we'll be hauled over the coals if MPPF changes, and then allows us to have far more of a choice with regard to Greenbelt release, which seems to be the motivation for why a number of them are are, are, are pausing. So, what's the answers to that when ministers will be saying, I've no doubt carry on with your plan making so they're, they're not going to be held over the coals by pins if they're releasing green belt because it's the no, choice by voters by voters that's 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 a, that what they need to just they're not going to have long to wait for the mppf to be out and policy i suppose is the short um short answer um so to be honest i would kind of keep going um and keep that evidence you know building up your evidence base and having the conversations thank you I mean, we're not waiting six months for this new these MPPF changes to come in. It's it's in, it's pretty quick. Spring is coming. Uh, Sasha, your question. Thank you, Chris. Um, Joanna, Chris has alluded to this. I mean, we've obviously got the consultation exercise. Can you reassure those that sit on the one on the development side of the fence that the government is conscious that they have a weighty and important voice in these proposed changes. I mean, you'll be aware of the concern that these changes are effectively going to lead to absolutely no stick whatsoever. Um, can I just ask your views on that, please? Uh, um, the government is absolutely committed to the three hundred thousand and housing delivery, and there's a there is a um, you know there is a strong emphasis on that. Uh, 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 so yes, those I can absolutely reassure colleagues about that. Thank you very much. Okay, and then finally, Mary, your question, please. Uh, forgive me, Joanna, but I'm going to. Um, I, we're on a theme here, I feel, and I just want to ask you this. Um, and this comes from Jeff, in part. I completely understand 
what you're saying about incentivizing. You want to incentivize councils to have local plans, more local plans, more housing delivery in those areas with up-to-date local plans. But clearly also uh, part of the message is you don't necessarily have to meet all your needs. So there's a question here about what happens to the inevitable gap between the housing that you are able to achieve and your 300,000 home target. There seems to be an inevitable shortfall that we will be looking at as we go forward. And what, what, how is the government going to meet that inevitable shortfall if councils don't have to meet their objectively assessed housing needs in full? What, what, what's, what's the answer to that? There's a word that I haven't used up until now, which I probably should have, which is it is about exceptional. So it is about exceptional circumstances. It's not sort of this is, you know, the, the onus will be on local government to explain and be clear why uh, they shouldn't meet their local housing need. Um, and, uh, and you know, uh, but what, what, what the MPPF update gives them is, is, um, is some matters that they can consider in, in, in looking at that. Um, Barring appealing to local councillors to do what their best for their communities and do that through a plan-led um, process, uh, I mean, I do think that's important. Um, and uh, you know, but and and pins will be have been uh, will be and as I said in the MPPF in the prospectus, will be asked to be pragmatic because we've sort of we've moved into a sort of process where um, that there's probably not a. Pro proportionate approach to the evidence required um, for um, some of this work. So there's uh, the document talks about, you know, sort of the MPINs being pragmatic and considering mm -hmm. it being proportionate. So we are in a, you know, I, I Mary, I suppose I'm not very thoroughly answering the question. My point being is we're sort of moving to a point where it is about proportionality in terms of evidence and consideration of the issues based on local circumstance. I, I understand you want quicker local plans. You don't want uh, so much resource and time spent in 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 the local plan in in the um, examination of local plans. I sort of, I understand that, um, but on the one hand, the message seems to be um, if you can demonstrate the exceptional circumstances, you don't have to meet your housing need. Oh, and by the way, you don't need to cooperate with your neighbours, so you don't need to ask them to make up any gap. So I'm just and by the way, you don't need to justify your plans. Um, so it kind of that some will worry that that uh, the gap between the objective of three hundred and uh, you know there, there'll be an inevitable shortfall, and maybe the answer, maybe the answer might be I don't know, uh, in those areas where councils get together, uh, you might expect to see greater growth. Your combined authorities, for example. Yeah, and just to clarify, point where it doesn't say you don't have to justify your plan. It says that. It, it, you know, you, you or your or, or one doesn't have to justify the plan or the decisions that have led to uh, the local housing need. It will still be a high bar in terms of um, you know evidencing uh, why you should defer from a local housing need and the reasons for doing so. Um, uh, if that's any reassurance, yes, not, thank you, thank you. So, so the sort of the emphasis of you don't have to justify is actually uh, uh, it's not that it's that. Uh, um, uh, there will be a more open, a, a slightly more pragmatic approach by pens to sort of a proportionate evidence, yes, rather okay. than over um, over straining the evidence to say, well, you it, you know, it's almost like well, you guys know all this. <laughs> no, I, I, but that's it, it's. It, I think it's important to to hear that because I think um, when you're doing uh, local plan examinations, um, you know, the, the justification. Uh, yeah, is a, is quite an important part has been yeah. anyway to date uh, of of the storyline and the idea that you don't need to justify lower numbers. Um, it, it doesn't seem to me to be the right way to go. Anyway, thank you. I, I think so to be clear, you will have to it, it will yeah. have to be justified. What uh, the intention that it, if if uh, it's a kind of, I mean. For goodness sake, nobody takes this into inquiry and quote me on this, but you know, it's more an 80 20 than a 99 to 1%. It's more, okay, this is a good plan. It's made best endeavors to accommodate growth. 
there are some constraints or for that matter this is a really pro-growth local authority they want to release their green belt uh, uh, and and that's the way to meet their growth potential it, it's basically it's 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 asking the inspector to work through those issues yes. pragmatically with yes. the local authority and that's a good plan in place rather than not can a pragmatic examination still be a rigorous examination because lots of people when they hear talk of pins being pragmatic in in various contexts they think in reality that means a lack of rigor uh that's a quite interesting philosophical question to my mind yes because everything we do in planning is about balancing different issues um, and different competing needs, demands, uh, risks, creativity, etc. That's just the nature of what we do, isn't it? What is fascinating and interesting to throw a question back at you guys, uh, which is you're the ones who try and disprove or prove sufficient evidence and um, uh, um, sufficient rigour into the system. And to some extent, you're there to challenge rigour and decision-making. Uh if you we know, get the opportunity to, if we get the opportunity yeah. to, problem. Yeah, I think what's interesting is to think about what is it, what would a local authority want, what would an inspector want, what would a community want, what would you as uh, barristers want to sort of say this is the territory which helps us make those dis informed decisions about is this plan doing its best for its community and for its place. And, uh, and 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 how do we make those decisions in a and we the phrase of pra pragmatic is generally used as a word uh, and we are making the right judgments in a balanced way as we do in many areas of planning I'm with you actually I'm sorry I, I, I don't like the idea that um, pragmatism means uh, you don't have rigor I I don't subscribe to that point of view I declare well, that you, now it's fascinating isn't it? you know the balance between uh, tying ourselves up in knots with uh, versus taking making professional judgments. I mean, yeah. you know, and it's a kind of it's a slightly different sort of nuance, isn't it? Thank you, Jaya. We're we're extremely grateful to you. That there are some seriously challenging questions we've asked you there, and you have been unbelievably brave to come on and answer those questions. And we we really are grateful that you have. Um, and I think that really what you're saying in some ways is, you know, you, you can see the disbelief that the development industry has. I'm sure you're aware of that. Um, a lot of people think the 300,000 will in reality be 150,000. So it'll get slashed in half. There'll be no way of getting to 300,000. But we've got to tell you that, haven't we? We've got to write in and participate in this consultation with evidence to allow you and your team, when they're talking to ministers, to be able to say, this is what we think the consequences will be. And the duty is on us to articulate that. And not just the development industry, but lots of local authority planners and people there. We need to respond to this consultation like never before. That's right, isn't it? It is It is exactly right. Uh, you know, um, governments um, and ministers take advice from officials. They make uh, important decisions. Those decisions are put out for consultation um uh, the process of feedback is incredibly important um uh, the depth and range of feedback is very important this is it's this is the start of i mean i've i this is the start of quite a lot of change coming into the system and actually i know we're sort of getting short of time but i just want to recognize with colleagues across the industry that we are very aware of this is a bit of change will then be followed by a lot more um and we don't we don't take we don't see that as um we we really recognize the sort of that um local authorities and others are sort of wanting to see what that journey looks like wanting to know that we recognize that that change is actually difficult um it's not just time consuming but it's happening at a time where people are dealing with lots of different challenges um and so we are actively thinking about what that change program looks like and not just sort of just dropping things in and hoping for the best and we'll be saying more about that in the coming coming weeks and months as well. Um, so yeah. the other, a quick quick on timing. There's a couple of other consultations that are due out fairly shortly. One on fees uh, and related issues of performance. Again, really important questions in that document. Um, uh, also, the um, I'm going to have to remind myself. I always forget at least one of them. Environmental outcomes reports, which we haven't talked about before. We could have an entire session on that. It's incredibly exciting. Um, uh, in due course infrastructure levy uh, and, and other sort of aspects including things to do with NSIP so it will be uh, a busy spell for other consultation documents as well coming forward 
Yeah, but perfect. Well, uh, well, that sounds like an invitation to get you back to talk about some of these other topics. So I hope we can very much do that. And I and I hope through the consultation, you know, when the consultation responses are in, um, you take the opportunity as a department to speak to specific groups um, as well and, and call them in and get them to speak on a one-to-one basis because the consultation responses allow us to do so much, but, you know, we can't get everything across. Um, you've been unbelievably generous with your time and extremely brave, and we're unbelievably grateful. Thank you very much. Charlie? Thanks, Chris. I am fascinated to second that, Joanna. Thank you very much indeed. I'm sure everybody watching this both now and later will really appreciate the, the transparency, you know, the, your, your um, very um, kind um, offer of explaining the reforms and thinking behind them and what we might expect in due course and when. Um, Somebody just says which year it's which spring, but uh, I won't push you on that. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. Enjoy um, your reunion events tonight. I say you're always welcome back on this show. I'm sure there'll be lots to talk about as the year progresses. Next time in two weeks to, uh, today, we have um, Lord Ed Vasey, um, um, who was a cabinet minister previously, Secretary for Culture. Um, he wrote a um, much um, discussed letters to the Times about some of the design aspects of the proposed consultation paper. Um, and um, he's going to talk about that and other matters in two weeks' time. So we're looking forward to welcoming Ed and Vasey on the show uh, in two weeks' uh, start time. In the meantime, thank you again, Joanna. Um, Pleasure. See you all in two weeks. Cheerio. Bye, Thank you, Joanna. Thank you so much. Bye.